beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even at the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves it is the gift of god not of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them therefore remember that formerly you the gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands remember that you were at the time without christ alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, one and broke down the dividing wall, the partition, by abolishing in his flesh all enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put the death, the enmity. And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For those through him, and we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, gracious God, you've given me the honor to be able to preach your word as it's terrifying each time for we know you to be holy. We trust you in your word and what your word says for you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, we are undeserving to sit under your preaching, to have your revelation be understanding to us, Lord, and that is all by the interceding of your spirit, Lord, for you hear our prayers, you know our hearts. You know, before we sit down and when we stand up, before we lie down and before we wake, Lord, you know everything that's on our hearts. Please cleanse our hearts. Lord, allow us to confess our sins and to be vulnerable to your word today. For we sit under its authority. Allow it to be for your glory's sake, not of my own, Lord, but for yours. For we may remember and to be able to continue on for the rest of this week, Lord, rejoicing in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I figured that when Pastor Jeff gave me the opportunity and asked if I would preach today, this evening, about a month's time ago, uh, my answer was absolutely, of course. I love this church. I love preaching the Word of God. It's an honor every single time. There's nothing else 
that I would rather do than to preach, um, which obviously explains with my wife probably giving birth later this evening and being able to preach up here um, for the honor and for his glory. Um, so the reason for this passage sake is because it's important to remember what we look forward to. And that's our heavenly citizenship, what we're called, what we take part in, in this time being. So for today's illustration here, it's actually a personal testimony. It's my everyday living life. I'm the head trainer over at Scott Air Force Base Honor Guard. For those who don't know, I'm active duty in the Air Force and I'm going to school at the Masters University currently in my junior year. And Lord willing, in the next couple of months or next couple of years, I'll be going to uh, the Masters Seminary in person if it's in the Lord's will. Um, but first and foremost, it's important that if the church sees that I am fit to preach, and that is what I'm just sent to do, I'm looking for their ordination um, first and foremost. Um, but for that being said, at Scott Air Force Base Honor Guard, we cover a 110,000 square mile radius. Um, we cover funerals every single day. And matter of fact, this calendar year, we're approaching 3,100 funerals of just those who have served. That's just a matter of those who've served a couple of years and those who have served the matter of the 20 and, and gave their lives for this country. Um, in the matter of just the last five or so months, we've buried nine that were serving on active duty. And in the matter of just another couple of days, we're going to go pick up a 23-year-old or so from the airport um, who took his life into the matter of his own hands, um, being able to do that. So we deal with a lot of death in this career field, but it is an honor to be able to witness with the 47 members that are underneath um, my supervision and to have the glory of Christ shine through for the ministry and the doctrine of God every single day through the training, that no matter where we are, our ministry is to be faithful to Christ and obedient to him. And so when I'm around death so often, this passage here Many passages in Scripture make me remember that it is a heavenly calling that we're looking forward to. The promise, the ones that the patriarchs looked forward to, the ones that we look forward to as well. The ones that they didn't get to see the fulfillment of the promise, but they do now. And the ones that we will eventually, and that's... So, for the background of Ephesians here, Ephesians is an epistle, and it was written to the church in Ephesus. Um, it was there was numbers of Jews. It was in the first century, and we know this from uh, Josephus's um, writing. And it's estimated anywhere to be in the hundreds or to the thousands of the Jews um, being there within the church. But we know it was obviously filled with Gentiles for the context of Paul's writing here. So Paul wrote the letter in his imprisonment in the Rome, and we can find that in Acts twenty-eight sixteen through thirty-one, and most likely sent out with um, Tychicus to deliver Colossians on the same journey, for he was the one accompanying the epistle. And so it was planted by more than likely the power couple of Priscilla and Aquila. We know them when we read Acts 18. Then Paul then resided in Ephesus after they were to stay there for those years and plant. He would reside in Ephesus for three years on his third missionary journey, according to Acts 19. So upon Paul's departure would be Timothy's turn to fulfill the pulpit preaching against the bad doctrine of the most Jews in the church and the myths and endless genealogies and the abstinence and keeping away from the food that were made clean by God and the preaching against marriage. We see Timothy preach and be instructed to preach about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 4. So it would only be the matter of just a few decades later where this admonishment, this, this exhortation epistle towards 
Ephesus, these um, believers in Ephesus, it would only be the matter of just 30 years later that they would be rebuked in the revelation of John, saying that they lost their first love, that they would serve, but ultimately it wasn't for the love of Christ any longer. So Paul exhorts the church to remember how they formerly walked was no more, and that they were no longer to walk in a manner that was unpleasing to God, but do it all for the honor and what was pleasing to God. And this epistle is just mainly focused on the blessings of Christ for the Gentiles. Us are now partakers of what Paul calls the mystery behind the Old Testament. The mystery meaning what was hidden and now made clear through our New Testament apostles. So for today's message here, we know that by faith in Christ, you are no longer wanderers, sojourners, but heavenly citizens, the house of God brought near by the blood of Christ. So let us get into today's message here. So our main points that we're going to be going over today is the first one is going to be on verse 19, and that's going to be in your notes here. And it's going to be the believer citizenship, the believer citizenship here. So I'm um, sort of new to the whole outline thing. So I just had to throw this you know, quickly together for Jeff's sake. So I apologize, Jeff, for um, giving you a hard time and doing it last minute before your lunch break there. But uh, bear with me, just take as many notes as you would please, and then the application portion on there, but um, I'll try to get through this. And one thing that Jeff and I have in common is that we all take, we both take a lot of notes, and we could preach up here for hours. So if I do, then you in the front row have the opportunity to come kick me in the shins to get me out of here, okay? All right, so beginning with verse 19 here, the believer's citizenship. So reading again, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Well, the term sojourner is a foreigner traveling through a land, having no familial or tribal affiliation with those among who he or she is traveling or living. The Bible teaches that there are two types of kingdoms. There can only be the one kingdom that you serve at all times. And that's what Jesus talks about. So in Jesus' kingdom, he rules, governs, and given authority over all of heaven and earth. He's given authority over the kingdom of heaven. We read this in John 18, verses 36 through 37. And the kingdom, the other side, that if you're not serving Christ, you don't belong to that kingdom, then the other kingdom is the kingdom of Satan and of this world. You cannot serve both Satan and Christ because if you belong to Christ, you are sealed in Christ. So, that being said, the Bible teaches with those two kingdoms that the kingdom of Christ only compromises or comprises of sheep within his fold. For those who answer and hear the call of his voice, we recognize this when we read his word. It comes out to us. We understand it. We understand everything that the word is saying to us because the spirit reveals us. We hear what his voice is because he opened his eyes to us. So called among the elect before the foundations of the earth. That's in Romans 8, 29 through 30. Sojourners was the same noun used by Stephen when describing Moses fleeing from to Midian for 40 years after fleeing from Egypt from Pharaoh's strong grip. Peter, speaking to the Jews, also referred to the Jews as sojourners and exiles. And if God's kingdom is a house, then all who are apart from his son must be sojourners and exiles and strangers in the land. For we once all, apart from Christ, were sojourners, but he called us back home. Now look at the comparison 
to be a U.S. citizen. Now, there's two major benefits that you could say of being a U.S. citizen. The first and foremost, I'm sure you can guess, is you have the right to vote. At the year 18, anyone who is a U.S. citizen can vote, you know, for the whole electoral purposes. It's a great honor to be able to have your voice heard, something that you wouldn't be without having that citizenship. So you're no longer under the treatment of being treated such as a third-class citizen in a country, but being able to have that voice heard. But the second is of equal importance, but I'm sure that it's in much greater value because we can refer to this in spiritual terms. And that is because you are brought into the point of no longer being able to be deported. You can no longer be exiled from there because you are now a part of this nation. You become a U.S. citizen, there is no more able, to, there is no more ability to ship you off outright. You are belonging to this. It is your voice heard first and foremost. So, only are you able to have the relief to call the nation your home, but you are also eliminating any possibility of being thrown out from the country in which you now belong. So the U.S. citizen calls the nation their home, while the regenerated believer regards and belongs to a much, much greater citizenship. He or she receives the heavenly citizenship. So that which we receive, we can no longer be exiled into the sojourner status. We are no longer considered to be walking amongst the sojourners and lost in the wilderness without a compass on where we to go, without any sense of direction. We have the calling. We understand. We hear God's voice. We understand who he is. So what does a heavenly citizenship entail? Well, first and foremost, I think we should understand this is that we are sealed. Christian, it is a Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that says in Ephesians, the first chapter of this, in verse 13, when we read here, I'm just going past this one, it says, In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel is your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So, those words, you are sealed. That means you are his, you are held, you are power, held in the power of God, in which his omnipotent, which meaning all-powerful, grip that nothing can take you from the grip of god that you are his and you now belong to his there's nothing that anyone can do to take you from that and it is lord that says in john chapter 10 when jesus says that i have given eternal life to them and they will never perish ever and no one will snatch them out of my hand and as the father has given us to jesus and is greater than all no one dares snatch them from his hand the king of the entire universe holds our salvation securely it is Him. It is our salvation that it is dependent upon His strength, not amongst our own. And had we ever had the chance to lose it, as we just heard Pastor say in the last service here, is that we would have already lost it. But we know that that is impossible because of the Almighty God. So by spiritual adoption, we get to call the God Abba, Father. We read this in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. So today you have teams. You have the NFL. You have the MLB. Their season is just getting kicked off into the playoffs here. You have the NHL. All kinds of sports. And when it comes to these sports, they wear a name on their jerseys. That name is associated with the city. It's associated with the state. Whatever they are, they are representing that city or state that they are playing for. They're playing for the honor. You have states, you have cities that are associated with types of food for having the best barbecue, having the best Asian food, having the best cuisine, having the best coffee, whatever it may be. For Paul, going back to in ancient biblical times, if we were to put one sandal on, metaphorically speaking, we see that Roman citizen 
Paul was, and in the ancient world, the city that you belonged to carried even greater pride. That you, when saying the name, the Paul of Tarsus or whomever was from that specific area, they belonged to that because they took pride in where they were from, where they were associated from. So, with that personal identity of where they're associated from, the MLB teams, NHL teams, whatever it may be, it's the same thing when it comes to the heavenly citizenship. No, it is much greater when it comes to the heavenly citizenship because we associate with that. We walk around with the honor of being able to honor Christ and that that is that who we represent. We represent Christ in belonging to the household of God. So Israel was sojourners in a foreign land for 400 years in Egypt. Those brought out of the Pharaoh's hand reminded sojourners wandering the desert for an additional 40 years when God swore in his wrath in Hebrews 3.19 because of their lack of faith. Not only did they miss out on the land of promise, but they also missed out on the part of entering into God's rest. They missed out on becoming heavenly citizens because of their lack of faith. So to enter into God's household, it must be by faith. It is by grace we have been saved through faith, not from our works that no man may boast, but is all by the power of God. So when we read the word here, fellow citizens, it is the only occurrence in the entire New Testament in which we read this by Paul. And there is to be no partiality between any of Jesus' own possession, no filing by class. So there's no such thing as when it means the first class as in Jews and the second class in Gentiles because there was a clash that was going on in this time frame in the context of Ephesians here where the Jews looked at themselves of having held the oracles and having held on to the promise of God that was given to them. They're treating themselves as first class citizens compared to the Gentiles that they're pleading like second-class citizens to have the mystery come so much later. So they're saying that, yes, you can be accepted into the kingdom of heaven, but we are viewed greater. But Paul would rebuke that very quickly. When speaking of Christ, who is forever holy, 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 what class do you surmount to when he is greater than what the Jewish converts would consider themselves as first-class while consider the Gentiles to be second-class? We should compare ourselves to the holy God in which we would never consider ourselves to be any type of class except for favored by God's grace and that alone. So as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, 29 through 30, or is it God, the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the faith is one. And then in Galatians 3.28, where he says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what pays your airfare into the admission into eternal life? What garners your citizenship into the kingdom of heaven? And what relinquishes the wrath from the Father? That is only faith in Jesus Christ. The household of God is full of the least in all categories. When we look at ourselves, right, we look at ourselves as a bunch of nobodies. Look at everyone through the time from the beginning that God has called amongst his elect and who he has called. We are literally just a bunch of nobodies. When it comes to the least amount of strength, wisdom, intelligence, whatever it may be, we are all unworthy of the calling of God to be called his. One of my favorite things that Steve Lawson said last year at Shepherd's Conference that I had the honor of going to, saying that regarding those who Christ choose, where he looked at the whole 
4,000 men in the audience there at Shepherds, those in also the overflow. And he said, look at us. It looks as if we all washed up on shore. That's exactly how we should look at ourselves, is those who have just the sand in our hair, torn clothes, whatever it may be. But when we approach the holy throne of God, he said, this one is mine. So now accepted by God, only by his grace, through faith in Christ. So that gets us into our second point here. The believer's family. The believer's family. Verse 20 here. And as I read again, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So now Paul transitions from talking to the fellow heavenly citizens that reside in the metaphorical house of gods. And then now we're going to transition into the whole foundation that is built underneath the house of God. Foundation that is used here is undoubtedly doctrine that he's speaking of here. It's the interpretation and it's the teaching. It's not a contradiction when we look at 1 Corinthians 3.11 where Paul writes, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So when Paul is saying here that the apostles and those of the prophets are the foundation here of this, what he's talking about is sound doctrine. He's saying that those that the church that is being built is off of the sound doctrine that they are preaching, that through the revelation and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from which these epistles in the New Testament was written, it is the doctrine that has built the church up. It is this word that are preaching out to you. This isn't cult speaking these words to you. It is the word of God that is penetrating our hearts, not the words of man. Christ is a steady and unshakable foundation to be more than trusted. It is man, the preaching of the word, that must be careful on how the church is being built. The apostles were the builders who initiated sound doctrine. Now faithful men in the pulpits, brothers and sisters, proclaiming on the streets, we are the building, the church upon Christ, from the revelation of God, from the word of God that was spoken. It is the word that we speak on there because it is only the power. That's Hebrews 4.12, where we see that the word of God is sharper than the two-edged sword. It's able to pierce through any type of bone and marrow and reach into the parts of where our words, if we were to throw my words off of you, would just bounce off like dirt. But versus the word of God here, it penetrates the deepest parts of our soul. So to be servants of God is to do as Paul instructed in Timothy in First. Timothy 4, 6, we're constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. It is important that when we study the word, we study it in great entail. We study in great interpretation. It is the word of God that we want to have full nourishments for our body because we don't want to just take it from, we don't want to open up the word of God and just see it as an observation and skip to the application port. We want to have observation, then lead into the interpretation so that we can have the application part. We shouldn't be cherry picking. We should treat it as if we're sitting down for the meal of dinner when we converse with our family members for an hour time it is the same way for the word of god in which we are to live by according to the lord jesus christ in which he was to evade temptation by saying that man shall not live on bread alone but by the word of god so there can only be one cornerstone by which the rest of the stones are laid compressing against jesus christ is the only source of our salvation so with respect to our Catholic friends that interpret Peter as being the cornerstone of this passage here, it's just bad doctrine. Just bad doctrine. The apostles' foundation was purely teaching that not the man himself, not the apostles here, that they're speaking of the foundation that can be laid, which is Christ. It is Christ 
that is the ultimate foundation, but is a doctrine that compresses up against Christ as the cornerstone built around that. It is Christ who is the cornerstone, which is the most important stone. So who else partook in the laying of sound doctrine? The prophets in which he talks about here. This isn't speaking of the Old Testament prophets, but this is speaking of the New Testament prophets. And the reason why we know this is because when we look in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, the prophet used by Paul is in the latter form, is not speaking of the whole, but he says that, and he gave himself as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. It is all through the gifts of the Holy Spirit in which he has allowed his church to be built for those reasons that he has designated these roles in which we have all the gift of evangelism to preach the word of God. But he has given the gift to specific people in order to build his church, such as what Paul is talking about here. So what is a cornerstone? When we read in Psalm 118, verse 22 here, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Meanwhile, Isaiah gives resolution to the one who has come to as a chief cornerstone that will not be shaken, for he says that, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in him will not be disturbed. Isaiah 28.16 The cornerstone was the most important stone to be laid when it comes to building a foundation. Because once the cornerstone was laid, then the foundation could be laid to rest against it. And then therefore, the superstructure that was to be built up on top would all be on how strong that cornerstone would be here. So your homes built upon the foundation of cement. We've gotten away from the whole cornerstone purpose for, for the metaphorical speaking of what it's speaking on here is that the house is a superstructure that tests the integrity of the whole foundation. So let me give you three examples of fool's cornerstones, some false cornerstones that you can pay attention to. A cornerstone too small. This would be anyone other than Christ because as soon as weight would compact against this cornerstone, it would knock it over by the time even any type of superstructure would sit on top of it. It would crawl over and crumble. So anyone who is other than Christ and speaking of becoming heavenly citizens, that's the only way that we are able to enter into the eternal life into the kingdom of heaven is through Christ alone. Upon anyone else that would ever proclaim upon any type of idolatry that we would have or that any man would have, children's of wrath, would all be dependent upon a cornerstone too small. The second one would be improperly placed. That's the love for the world, idolatry, and love for sin. Things that in which we can try to atone for as far as our love for sin, because ultimately we know that before we were called to Christ, that we sinned because we loved it. It was the way of life. That is why Paul calls children a wrath because we lived freely. There was no one to hold us accountable. But the moment that God set us apart, that sanctified us, that sealed us, that is the moment where our eyes would open to our sin and realizing that our sin is what drove him to the cross. And the third one is the wrong stone used. The wrong type of cornerstone used. This would be cutting corners, trying to do it the easy way, trying to earn your way into salvation trying to buy your way into salvation, not putting your faith into Jesus Christ. 
those are the ones in which the strong stone would use. Where if you're not to use a strong stone, such as one that can take any type of weight to prevent it from breaking, the strong, the wrong kind of stone would be that you could lay the foundation up against it. Everything looks good. But the moment that you have a superstructure stand on top of it, everything crumbles to the ground where it's tested at the very end. So those who live their entire life thinking that they're a good person, thinking that they, if this was on a balance type of scale on whether or not the good things that you've done on the latter part of your life are outweighing the bad things that you did on the former part of your life, they will be the ones to find out that when it comes to seeing Jesus face to face, where he said, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That is the wrong type of stone used. All will lead to a foundation described by Jesus in Luke 6.47 here through 49. This would be the proper type of foundation that we lay here. Listen to the word of God where he says that everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug and went deep and laid a foundation on the rock. These verses right here is what I have inscribed into my wife's wedding ring. Because there is nothing that can stand or the test in trial other than the foundation that is which is Christ. That has stood the testament of time and it will never be shaken. But as we know from our singing today, that those who put their trust in the wrong type of foundation, the wrong kind of stone, the improperly placed, the cornerstone that is too small... They sink as if it is sinking sand. It is Christ on this solid rock that I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That is the whole reason for that hymn today. So all other stones must align themselves with the cornerstone. The wall adjacent to the cornerstone base themselves off the cornerstone. Meaning our thoughts, our actions... Our character all need to reflect Jesus Christ. How great of a cornerstone is Jesus? When walking down the western wall of Herod's temple, and you can see this in today, I'm actually taking a class called The Land of the Bible. And when doing this, there's a video of Dr. Varner here who has taken his class in there and getting a tour. And on the western or the wailing wall of Herod's temple, the largest stone of the foundation you will find is 29 feet in length and 11th feet in width. The size of a large tour bus weighing 570 metric tons. One stone. It is absolutely massive. For those non-metric wizards such as myself, that is 1.24 million pounds for one stone. And as we heard from both Pastor Jeff and this passage here, the passage in Hebrews, Jesus is greater than all of that. He is greater than a 1.24 million pound stone that was somehow able to be moved in that time frame. But the matter is, is that what we've seen from the temple of the three times of its destruction, Christ's foundation has yet to be shaken and it never will. He is the true cornerstone. All other stones must align themselves with the cornerstone. 
So, life is full of trials. It's full of tribulation. Persecution, whatever may be, life gets difficult. When the will of God seems blurred by our emotions that typically just come about, they cloud our biblical convictions and discernment. What is the Christian to do? Look to the true cornerstone. The one who chose you before the foundations of the earth sanctifies every believer in the matter of the Holy Spirit that we're able to overcome any type of trial because of the power of God that dwells within us. Your ability to make it through life's trials is because you went from being sojourners of the earth, sojourners who were excluded from the promises of Israel, but God, rich in mercy, according to His grace, drafted you into the promised kingdom of heaven. Christ's inheritance, or Paul says, for by grace you have been saved, laid by the side of the cornerstone, which is Jews on one side, and Gentiles on the other. Neither is greater, nor is one more important than the other. It is only Christ as the cornerstone that is truly the most important in which we put everything up against. And this leads us into our last point here. When speaking of the believer sanctuary from verses 21 through 22, as I read in the word of God here, that in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Joined and fitted together in unity. In honor guard, there's instances, as I talked about the 3,100 funerals, but only a select few is ones that we actually pallbearer a casket. To pallbearer means to carry. Caskets can weigh anywhere from 400 to 650 pounds. We have three-man team on each side of here. We carry it over to the grave site for it to be laid and buried, in which where the committal service, the obituary, wherever it may be, is taking place. It requires a six-man team. And each man is to remain in step, meaning that if one man steps with the left foot, the other five is to step with the left foot, so on and so forth, all the way from taking it out of the hearse all the way to the mock-up in which they are to be laid down into the ground. If one person, however, gets out of step, what happens is you lose the flow of unity when to which you're now you're going from what it feels as if you're walking with one person all the way down. Now it feels as if you're walking against six different type of people. You're pulling against each other. There's no longer any type of unification and it's causing extra type of work and it's causing dismay where you're exhausted by the time you even get there. How similar is this if we carry bad doctrine into the church? fails to exercise the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the enmity between Jew and Gentile persists. The superstructure of the church will falter. That's what Paul's making mention of here. That the Jews and the Gentiles were to work in unified, in unison with each other for the glory of Christ, for His will. So church, yes, we are individual when it comes to being sanctuaries. That It is the spirit that dwells within us. We are sanctuaries of the Lord. But when it comes to the sanctuary of all coming together, we make up one temple, one solid stone. 
So where there is unity built by believers through sound doctrine, obedient Christians who honor God in the hearts, zealous for good works, will create multiple sanctuaries. Describing the gathering of believers, we become one great stone laid. The sanctuary, which is the body of Christ, functions as it is supposed to, and that's all for the glory of God. And so notice how in verse 20 here, where it says, having been built, where from the time that the Spirit dwelt in our hearts by the penetration of the Spirit of God, who through the Word of God made us into living stones, then Paul lists several active tense by saying that being the cornerstone, being joined together as citizens of the heavenly throne, and being built together. Notice the noun being consistently used by Paul, which means that all our continuous actions continuously being done as we speak through here through the spirit because if it is the body of christ that we see here if it is our body that makes up the sanctuary in which that the spirit resides in us then it is the holy spirit that is the blood flowing through us it is the living god it is not the god that once was is the living god that consistently lives through us so if we are to function as a body where if I'm to use a metaphor here, where it just says that I'm a foot, we can't have the whole body just be one foot. We need different parts of the body that can work together in order to travel and walk with Christ in order to serve His glory. All are continuous actions that bring surefire assurance of our salvation. So look around you from your left and your right, your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is his body that he purchased. This is who he has set apart. Sanctified, consistently sanctifying, is you, obedient believers, of being here today in the fellowship. It is the spirit that is flowing through us as our blood that consistently moves us forward. So in conclusion... What other type of citizenship is there other than the heavenly citizenship in which we currently reside? This brings rest and assurance as we read through the book of Hebrews. Where number one, there's four points that I'll make here, is that the Spirit is constantly working in you. But the Spirit, if quenched, will go just as far as what you're feeding yourself from the Word of God. We have to be staying in the Word of God. We have to consistently be nurtured by it. We have to treat it as if it's our blood sugar. Speaking of my wife's blood sugar, just being if it's high in the matter of giving birth here, where we have to be able to control as far as how we take well care of the body here. We have to have that proper nutrients here. Number two is God determines the growth. It is no matter how much we can work, no matter what we do, it is God who is always the one that determines the growth. It is not us. It is not our words that when we go out there and evangelize and we preach on the corners there, it is not our words that is the ones to save, but it is God's who plants in the heart. Whereas Paul says between him and Apollos, between planting and watering, it is God the one that causes the growth and harvest. So it is the work on the third point of the entire body where it says in 1 Peter 2.5, we are living stones. 
as a church, Jewish converts and Gentiles converts are a living body continuously growing in the Lord. Where the more that we grow, the more and more we should look more like Christ in our walks. And then number four here is we share the same spirit. Those in the time of past, from the time of Pentecost up until nine, or even the ones that the spirit came upon those in the Old Testament, it is the same spirit before even the foundations of earth from eternity past into eternity future. It is the same spirit, the third person in the Trinity here that dwelt in Christ. And it is that spirit that rose him from the dead. It's the same spirit that resides in us now that will also raise us from the dead. Both Jew and Gentile. That when it comes to living life of Christ, it shouldn't surprise us when people come to us and ask why things are different, why we do things differently, why we look at life differently, why we treat people differently, why we love people differently. Everything should be different to the point of where it even caused hatred in people's heart. Because that of what is death is death and that what is life is life. That we represent Christ to the rest of the world. Where the salt of the preservation of the earth, we should make others quench for righteousness. And that on the light of the hill, where we should be seen from afar, no matter how far it is, others should be able to see the doctrine of God and work within us. So in prayer, in our time of the word, that is our main focus in order for us to go serve our holy God, the one and true cornerstone who has invited us into heavenly citizenship. Let us pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the opportunity to preach here today, for preach your word, the word that was most definitely inspired by the Holy Spirit, that you still kept the personality of man, Lord, but it is under your superintendence in which we can trust it to be inerrant and infallible. Lord, we trust your word today. We trust in what you are doing in this congregation here. We pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here. Pray for their walks, that whatever they may facing or going through, Lord, whatever trials that they may be facing, but they are here today, Lord, because they are hungry for your word. They are hungry to be fed by you. And we know that in their obedience, that they put their faith and trust into you as a firm foundation, trusting that nothing can ever shake the foundation on which they now stand upon that we gather around together, Lord, knowing that it is not one that serves the entire work of the body, but it is all of us that serve with you as a head. We trust in the Spirit, Lord. We pray for my wife. We pray for Jeff and Elizabeth, Lord. We pray for all those who weren't able to be in attendance. We pray for this whole congregation here those who call CFBC home. Lord, work within us in this time that we take for prayer and fellowship with one another, Lord. Allow our main focus to be on one another, to care for one another, love one another, and to show the Spirit and work within us. All for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name, amen.